Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, the rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 18 today. Love, love, love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. That's what the Beatles sang to us back in 1967. Uh, it was kind of an anthem for the generation at the time. The manager of the Beatles, a guy named Brian Epstein, uh, said that the song was intended to send a message to the world that love is everything. Now this happened in 1967, July 1967 is when the song was released. That actually was during something called the Summer of Love. Um, I know this is way ahead of some of your time, but a lot of you might remember the Summer of Love. This was a time of great optimism and hope and excitement as various bands were singing about love and the message was being sent that you know if we can only just get serious about loving each other and one another that you know we can really change things in this world and here it is 51 years later and it doesn't seem like things have gotten a whole lot better does it uh, we hear about school shootings, we hear the political rancor in our country, we hear about racial tensions, and if anything, it seems like things might even be worse now than they were before. It does seem like the world could use a whole lot more love. A guy named Roger McGuinn, he was the lead singer of a group called The Birds. The Birds were very popular in this time in the 60s, and years later, as Roger McGuinn was looking back on the 60s and uh, kind of the summer of love, the hippie generation, he wrote this. He said, the whole idea that we could change the world musically with good thoughts, positive energy, good vibrations, that we could write songs that would make people love each other and not hate each other was really a wonderful idea. It didn't quite work, but it was a great idea. So what will work? Is there, is there anything that will work? Is there any hope? that we can have. Can love really do anything in this world? Is there any hope for us as we seek to love one another? And that's what John is talking to us here about in the book of 1 John. Um, one thing I've been telling you about this study, by the way, we're going through the book of 1 John here at New Life, just one passage at a time. We've been here for a few months. And one thing that you might have noticed is how often sometimes John will repeat himself uh, sometimes he'll just say the same things over and over. So back in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, he talked a lot about love. So we've already heard him talk about this. When we get to chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, he's, he's going to talk about love again. And here we are in chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, and guess what he's talking about? He's talking about love. Now, I'm not going to try to skirt around this. Uh, I'm just going to let the repetition speak for itself because if John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thinks it's important to repeat these things, they must be really important for us to know. I mean, these must be things that John wants us to pay careful attention to. So, let's read this passage. Let's stand out of respect for the word of God. 
1 John 3, verses 11 through 18. Actually, I'll start in verse 10. That kind of starts the theme. 1 John 3, 10 through 18. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. We talked about that last week. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Holy Spirit, would you please come and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the passage begins in verse 11 with uh, just a very clear direction. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Uh, again, that's another phrase that he's been repeated repeating throughout this letter from the beginning. That's the apostolic message that John's readers have been hearing about the gospel. He's saying that this is something we've been saying over and over again. You've heard this. It's no innovation. It's nothing different. What I'm saying to you is that we should love one another. Verse 11. So that kind of gets us started. And the way um, John continues through this passage to explain this is by use of contrast. So you might remember last week I was saying that John is a very black and white thinker, not, not a lot of gray area in John's mind. You're either a children of the devil or a children of God. Things are either of the light or of the darkness. And in this hate we see, again, this similar kind of contrast. It's love versus hate. It's Jesus versus Cain. It's the church versus the world. And so that's how we're going to consider this passage in just two points of contrast. And the first one is simply this. What John tells us is that the world is characterized by hatred. The world is characterized by hatred. Now let me just clarify that for a moment. I'm not meaning to suggest, and I don't think John would either, that unbelievers or people outside the church are unable to love one another or unable to love their friends and their family. That's not what this means. But if you look throughout human history, I think you'll agree with me that human history, I mean, from the very beginning, it seems to have been characterized basically by one episode after another of war, oppression, injustice, slavery, and hatred. That doesn't characterize everything in human history, but that's pretty much the way it's been and it's pretty much the way it seems to still be. And so this is what characterizes the world, a sense of hatred. So I'm going to think of this in two ways, the evidence of hatred and then the very essence of hatred. So first of all, evidence of hatred. What, what, what does hatred naturally lead to? What is the final evidence of hatred 
in a person's heart. And you see this in verse 12. John says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So the evidence, the final evidence of hatred is murder, or that is taking life from others. And John uses the story of Cain to demonstrate this. Now, maybe you know about this story. It's from Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were brothers. They both came and they brought their offerings to God. And the Lord received Abel's offering but rejected Cain's offering. And that made Cain very angry. And he got so angry that when the time came that Cain and Abel were out in a field somewhere, Cain killed Abel, murdered his own brother. The very first murder in all of human history, the first murder that was, of course, a pattern of many to come. Now, as we hear that, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, uh, duh, I mean, this is really nothing new. You're telling me not to go murder somebody? Uh, That's the lesson of the sermon? Do not murder? I mean, who doesn't know that? That we're not supposed to murder And some of you might be thinking, I have no plans to murder anybody anytime soon. Uh, So let's move on. Um, I I know this. But friends, look what John does here. If we skip down to verse 15, John really turns up the heat here and says something quite shocking. Look at verse 15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, let's clarify that in one sense. What John seems to be saying is that there is an equivalence between the two. Now, in the eyes of the state, you know, they're not exactly the same, right? I mean, you don't get put in prison for for hating somebody. Murderers get put in prison, but, but not haters. So in the eyes of the state, maybe they're not quite the same, but in the eyes of God, they are. So look what Jesus says here in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever mur- and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Wow. This is what sets Christianity apart from so many other religions and so many other worldviews. One of the main essences of Christianity is that it's not just merely about outward behavior. It's not just merely about what we do, about what is observable to others. Christianity is about what is going on in your heart. It's about motives. The goodness of an action in the eyes of God depends not just on what you do, but why you do it. It has to do with your motive. How many things do we do that appear to be good, but inwardly were full of anger and bitterness and hostility? In the eyes of God, friends, that thing is not valuable to him at all, as long as your heart is set against God and set up against the people that you're serving. serving. So what John is saying here is, you know, if you think of two people, here's a hater here and then here's a murderer here. Now the murderer might be in prison and the hater is not, but in the eyes of God, morally speaking, they're exactly the same. They have the same 
character. In the case of the hater who hasn't murdered, it's just simply that his hands haven't gotten to do what his heart really wants to do. So the ultimate evidence of hate is murder, but the first step toward murder, the first step toward murder is hate. There's a movie called A Simple Plan that I'm not necessarily recommending to you. I'd have to review the content before I did that, but I I remember the general storyline. It just starts off with a mere little theft, and by the end of the movie, people are killing each other because of hatred in their hearts. God looks at the heart while men look at outward appearances, and nothing highlights our need of a Savior more than this, does it? I mean, this is why we keep telling you, you can't be good enough to please God, because you might be doing things outwardly that really look good, but the question is, what's going on inwardly? And God knows. I don't know, but God knows. And there's no way your motives are going to be pure in everything that you do, and that makes you need a Savior. You're not good enough, friends. Outwardly speaking, you might look good enough. Inwardly, you're not. And that's the principle we're getting here. The evidence of hatred eventually is murder, but it begins with hate. Now, how about the essence of hatred? What, what does John tell us is really the essence of hatred? In other words, why do people hate? Well, let's look at verse 12. Look what he says. <clears throat> He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And then he goes on. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So the reason for Cain's hatred is what we would say is envy or, or jealousy. I don't know if my, are you helping me back there or is this working? You're not? Okay, it's a little slow on the response. So um, th- this is why Cain hated it. It was his envy or his jealousy of Abel. So Cain saw that Abel was offering up this sacrifice to God and God accepted Abel's and not Cain's and we're not sure exactly why that happened. There's a lot of written about that. There's a lot of debate about that. We do learn in Hebrews 11 chapter 4 that Abel's offering was by faith and Cain's wasn't, so therefore Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's wasn't. But as a result of this, as Cain saw that Abel was doing something right, doing something pleasing to God, and that he wasn't, that became the root of his hate, which eventually led to Abel's murder. So here's the principle. It often goes like this, that those who do not do what is right tend to hate those who do. Now, it's not this way all the time. There are exceptions. If you look in Acts chapter 2, you'll notice that the, the, the church, as it was growing, it said it gained the favor of all the people. And so there are occasions when the church is respected and valued by the community, but generally speaking, this is what's true. Those who do not do what is right tend to hate those who do. That's what was happening with Cain. He couldn't stand it that Abel did it right and he didn't. And I think probably most of you know what I'm talking about. You know what it's like, that person in your life who always does it right. 
And, and maybe it's a sibling. It very often happens with, with siblings. I mean, this is Cain and Abel, and maybe you have a brother or sister, and, and maybe you're the one who just can't ever seem to do it right. And there's that brother, there's that sister, there's that friend, there's that person. They always say the right thing. They always do the right thing. They never get in trouble. They always get good grades. They always do it right, and you hate it. That was the experience of Cain. He couldn't stand what was going on in Abel's life, that he was doing so well. There's something insidious in our hearts that rise up against those who are better than us. And that's what eventually leads to murder. Now, there's a connection between verses 12 and 13 here. It says, Cain murdered Abel because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous and then it seems kind of like a non sequitur almost suddenly he jumps and he says do not be surprised brothers that the world hates you and so what John seems to be saying here is that if it's true that people tend to hate those who do right and if it's true that that's the reason why Cain hated Abel it's probably going to be the case that the world is going to hate you and me when we pursue righteousness in our lives we're probably not going to be popular in the world's eyes to the degree that our lives are being conformed to God and we are truly pursuing righteousness. I uh, saw an example of this recently. It was after Billy Graham died and um, <clears throat> there was a columnist for a magazine called Teen Vogue and she tweeted out about Billy Graham, um, have fun in hell, she said about Billy Graham. Now, Billy Graham is not a perfect man, but by pretty much all accounts, a, a man who maintained a pretty impeccable character, pretty much free of controversy over his life, and here's somebody saying that the man is probably burning in hell. Why, why would she say that? <laughs> now, it came out later that, she, that, that Billy Graham was accused of being homophobic, so that might have been one reason for her hatred, but I think probably the bigger reason is simply because Billy Graham stood in this world as a representative of Jesus Christ. And the world hates that. And Jesus said that the world would hate this. He said, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, I mean, this passage brings up an interesting question. What does it mean if the world loves you? What does that mean about your faith? What does that mean about your witness for Christ if the world loves you and you've never experienced any pushback, any persecution, any challenge whatsoever about your faith? If you were of the world, the world would love you, it says. And what John says is, don't be surprised. The world is going to hate you. If you're undergoing right now, if you're undergoing some kind of persecution or pushback or hostility, you're out of step, you're unpopular, you're feeling lonely in your place of work or your neighborhood, you're just feeling like you don't belong, don't take it personally, okay? If people hate you for your witness, it, it probably has nothing to do with you. It has something to do with Jesus living in you. Don't take it personally. But we might ask ourselves, if I get no pushback from the world, what does it say about the life of Jesus in me? The world characterized by hatred. Well, let's look at the contrast now. 
the second thing. If the world is characterized by hatred, the church should be characterized by love. Now I say should be because that's not always the case, but the church should be characterized by love. So same thing, let's look. Evidence of love. First evidence is that it's love expressed in the church. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of life into death because we love the brothers. Do you notice that? The brothers. That's the context of this passage. John is talking about love for brothers and sisters. The context is love within the church. And what verse 14 tells us is that one of the sure and true evidences that you are really a Christian and that your faith is real is that you have love for brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we ask that question a lot. How do we know who's a Christian and who's, who's not? I mean, it's a good question. We don't always know, but what is John saying here? We know we've passed out of, life and into, out of death and into life. We've been born again. We know that is true because we love the brothers. It's actually pretty simple. And so when you hear people say, you know, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, that's an aberration, friends. That, that cannot last long. The person in whom God by his spirit lives cannot say that for long because the true born-again Christian wants to be with God's people, wants to sing with God's people and worship with God's people and fellowship with God's people and wants to serve God's people. And so that's the evidence that we find here of love. It's service to God's people. Let's move on here in verse 17. It says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Do you see what, what John is saying here? He, he's saying that one of the way we evidence love is the way we respond to the needs of God's people, to our brothers and sisters in the church. Now, notice here in verse 17 that this is not talking about some government redistribution of resources. If anyone has the world's goods, this is not saying that the government needs to step in and take from those who have and distribute it to those who don't. Because the context is in the church. This command is saying that Christians who have means, Christians who have possessions, who have resources, ought to be ready to give generously to other Christians who don't. That's the principle. Every time, friends, every time you as a Christian run into a fellow Christian in need, your love is being tested. That's an opportunity for you to show your faith to be genuine and your love to be real. Now, th this is not easy, right? We, we all know that. And uh, look in verses 16 and 17. If you look at the very end of verse 16, there's an interesting change that John does here. Watch this. He says, at the end of verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, plural, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, I think it's like it's easy to say, oh, all you need is love when we're talking about love for people in general, but it's a little harder when you're talking about loving the person sitting next to you in the chair here at church. 
when you're talking about loving the person who has offended you and who irritates you and you don't like, here's the way C.S. Lewis said it, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. (laughs) I love that. That's that's so well said. So so how do we do this? You know, how, how do we... How do we fulfill verse 17? I mean, there's a lot of simple ways, you know. You, people, a uh, brother or sister needs a place to stay. You, you open your home for a while. You, you let them come in. Um, p- people need meals when they're sick and they're grieving. And we have a meal ministry here. Many people who step forward and, and provide those meals. We have parents who would probably love to be able to kind of get out of the house for a little while and have somebody come in and watch their children so they can have a date for the first time uh, in several years. Uh, This is the way that the church can step up, that we can love one another. And, And we can do these things. And I think this is part of the essence of love, which we'll get to here in a moment. But we ought to be able to do these things without thinking, what is this gonna cost me? And does this person really deserve it? And when am I going to get paid back? Those are not the motives for love that would be honoring to God. As we seek to honor verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods, if anyone has been provided for, and then sees a brother who has a need... There should be a response. I, I just want to say, too, you know, with regard to uh, the issues of, of racism in, in our culture and in the church right now, particularly as we hear from minorities in our churches and African Americans who are, who are crying out and saying that they, they have certain needs. I mean, this passage isn't telling us exactly what we're supposed to do, but it is saying that you shouldn't close your heart against them when people come forward whoever they are and they say they have a need and you harden your heart and dismiss it immediately without listening without hearing at the end of verse 17 what does it say how does God's love abide in him the person in whom the spirit of God lives wants to help brothers and sisters in need That's the evidence of love. That's what it ends up looking like. Well, how about the essence of love? The essence of love is there in verse 16. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. All you need is love, okay? Yeah, it's a nice sentiment, but I think it begs a larger question. What what do you mean, John Lennon and Paul McCartney? By love. I mean, what is your conception of love? How do you define love? And that's what John is telling us in verse 16. Here's how we know what love is. Here's how we define it. Here's how we know what it looks like. It's that Jesus Christ laid down his life for you and for me. And so the evidence, uh, excuse me, the essence of love is giving life for others. Do you remember what I said about uh, hatred in the case of Cain? It was taking life from others. The essence of Christian love is giving life for others. If the greatest sin is taking life, as we have seen it evidenced in Cain through his hatred, the greatest love must be giving of one's life. And that's what Jesus has done for us. 
That's what Jesus has done for you. Back in July 2nd, 2006, a guy named Tim Flanagan was killed in Afghanistan fighting for our country. His father was uh, talking about Tim, and, and he said Tim just, he just loved his country. And, and then he said this. He said, if you don't love to the point of sacrificing everything, you haven't really loved. Now, most of us, very few of us, have gotten to the point where we've had to sacrifice everything. I mean, very few, well, we're all living here, so none of us has been called to lay down our life for somebody else. Few of us have been called to sacrifice everything for somebody. Few of us have loved like that, but God has loved us like that. Laying down his life, giving of his all for people who hated him. Laying down his life for people who hate him. That's the gospel. We, we have here in verse 16, you know, an example. By this we know that he laid down his life and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So there is a sense in which Jesus' death on the cross was an example. I mean, we can say that, but we don't want to stop there. Because we go out throughout the rest of the New Testament and even in the book of 1 John and, and we know that there's more to it than that. That Jesus died as a propitiation for our sin, to turn away the wrath of God to remove your guilt, to absorb the punishment that you deserve, to purchase you for himself, to justify you before God's law, to remove all of your sin from your record, even your hate for your siblings, your brothers, and even your hate for God. So, friends, this is my, my challenge to you, just to examine yourself. Is there, is there hatred in your heart today? Did you come in this place filled with hate for a spouse or for a sibling, a brother, a sister, for a friend, a roommate, a coworker, for a politician, for a president? Is there hate in your heart? Don't be like Cain. That's, that's what the clear exhortation is. Don't be like Cain. Don't underestimate how quickly hate can destroy you. Don't underestimate what hate can lead to. You don't think you could murder somebody? Think again. Lay your hate at the foot of the cross and in the gospel, let's find the power and the grace to lay down our lives for one another. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for loving us so well. In your son, Jesus, in his name we pray, amen.